Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion Ephratites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. Then Elimelech died Naomi's husband and she was left with her two sons and they took for themselves Moabite women as wives the name of the one was Orpah the name of the other one was Ruth and they lived there about ten years then both Mahlon and Kilion also died and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband so she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food Father, thank you so much for the book of Ruth and for all the riches contained in here. Thank you for this intimate friend, this beautiful companion that travels with us. Thank you as we do often, Father, for all of the books of Scripture and all of the words that you gave us. Father, I laugh as as friends were coming in tonight and... And as the comment was made, I made the comment, Lord, don't believe everything you read. And that's somewhat true, except when it comes to your words. And we believe everything we read in your word. For it has for us, Father, life. And so breathe life into us. Holy Spirit, teach us, draw us, lead us, conform us to your will, Father. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I invited you all to a special homework assignment on Sunday. I'm not going to take a show of hands. We're not going to have any quizzes or anything. But that assignment was, if you choose to accept it, to read through the book of Ruth once a day. Or at least to read through it once a week. So you still have until Sunday to, to accomplish this if you decide to do the once a week plan. Reading through it at least once a week. Because Ruth means, as we talk about on Sunday, it means beautiful companion. And this book truly is that. It's a beautiful companion. There is so much wealth in this book to understand. Beautiful companion. It's, It's a great name for Ruth because we see this in her character. It's a great name for the book because we see it in the character of the book. It is one of those worth reading again and again and again. As with all of the 66 books in this library of Scripture... We carry with us, you have in your laps, a beautiful companion. Psalm 119, 97, the psalmist writes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 165 of Psalm 119, Those who love your law have a great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Verse 167 of that same psalm, My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. And can you say that? Can you say that you love the Word of God exceedingly? That it's your meditation all through the day. If not, don't feel guilty about that. Just repent. Turn around and and allow this beautiful companion to be for you, your meditation throughout all the day. Well, how do I do that, Rick? Well, get a real small one that fits in your back pocket. Maybe a little bigger one that fits in the desk drawer at work. And another one that you can have around the house. So that everywhere you go, you're reminded of that beautiful companion. And at any time, you can pop it open and meditate on and consider the words that God has given us. That's what this book is for. To meditate on. To walk without stumbling. To love exceedingly, even and especially in the dark times of our lives. The times of despair or doubt confusion, depression, sorrow. For as you know, if you were here Sunday, that's where the book of Ruth begins, with Naomi's sorrow. They leave Bethlehem Ephrathah in Judah because of a famine, and they journey then on to Moab. I'll remind you, Bethlehem is the house of bread. And Ephrathah means... Ephrathah means... Does anybody remember what Ephrathah means? No. Moab means toilet. Bethlehem Ephrathah, no, because you don't want to have the house of bread in a toilet. That wouldn't work. So Bethlehem Ephrathah, house of bread, it means fruitful. 
fruitful. The whole picture of Bethlehem Ephrathah is a fruitful house of bread in the land of Judah, which means praise. So the whole idea here is being in that house of bread, which you are tonight. You're in the house of bread. You've got the, the bread of life. You've got to open up before you. It's fruitful. It will grow things in you. It will change and impact each of us. And it's a place of praise. You cannot read this book, by the way, without entering into worship. I am convinced of that. So they leave that place and then they go to Moab, which is the, the wash pot, the toilet bowl. Psalm 108, verse 9. You can check that out. The word wash pot is used, but it's, it's, that's what's implied is the commode. And they do so, interestingly, they leave this house of bread to avoid famine. And what they find when they come to Moab is death. Elimelech dies. Elimelech's name, his name means, my God is king. God my king. Elimelech lived in that time of Israel where there was no king in Israel. And, and I, I hate to be judgmental, I hate to say it, but I, I'm wondering if, Moab, if, if Elimelech's name really meant anything to him. Did he follow the Lord into Moab? I don't think so. It's ironic that his name would be my God as king, and yet he leaves Bethlehem to go to this place of Moab. But in this place of deepest sorrow, where Ruth has lost her husband and her two sons, and she is alone and without country, in this place, God shows up. Verse 6, as we read, the Lord visited his people in giving them food. We also saw that at the end of the book, in verse 16, that Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became a nurse to him. I'm sorry, verse 13 is the one I wanted. The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive and to give birth to a son. And again, Sunday, we talked about those two verses bookend the book of Ruth. There are the two times in the book where the author, the author himself, the writer, speaks directly of the Lord. The rest of the time, the characters within the book will speak of the Lord, but the author, at the beginning and at the end, sandwiches in the whole entire story with, of Ruth with the providence of God. On one end, he visits his people. On the other end, he causes Ruth to be able to conceive. Bookends of providential intervention. And that's the story of Ruth. How Naomi's sorrow becomes satisfaction. Ruth's despair becomes delight. Their hopelessness turns into happiness. And this is what Ruth is about. And is that not the story of God's sovereignty in our lives? Taking us from the place of sorrow to the place of satisfaction. Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And some would say, Well, I'm not having good in my life. Well, I have good news for you. If you're not having good in your life, He's going to make it into good. If you're called according to His purpose, if you love the Lord, you put your life in His hands. Even the worst of situations, you can be assured, is going to turn out for the best, for good. We can say that about a lot of circumstances in our life just to try and make ourselves feel good. But the only place we can really truly say this is in the Lord, in His sovereignty, His sovereign goodness, He works all things out for the ultimate good. By the way, it was 1,200 years later in a time of Israel's great sorrow that the Lord would visit Bethlehem again. This time in person as a little baby, as Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And he visited Bethlehem with more than satisfaction. He visited Bethlehem with salvation. Well, we studied the first six verses. Let's continue on in the book, beginning in verse 7. So she, Naomi, departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi saw that her two daughters-in-law, she, she said to them, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. In other words, I hope you find someone else. Your husbands have now died. And it says she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept and they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. Now I would call this, this intro to the book, this beginning, the relationship between Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, I would call this the fellowship of suffering. For these three women love each other. They love each other dearly. And a big part of that is because they have walked through the valley of the shadow of death together. The daughters-in-law helping their widowed mother-in-law after the loss of her husband. The widowed mother-in-law helping now her two daughters-in-law who are widows. Together, the three of them, the fellowship of suffering. They're bound together by their hardship. 
And their fellowship is deeper for the struggle they share. And I pause because there is something to this, and I don't want to depress anyone, but there is an upside to suffering. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, that if one member of the body, that's you and I, that's, that's the, the fellowship of believers, both including the bridge, but also including anyone who claims Jesus Christ as Lord, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, if you just heard that verse and you weren't a Christian and had no context or any understanding for it, you'd say, well, why would I want to join that group of people? <laughs> Someone stubs their, their toe and everybody hurts with them. Someone has a, a marital problem and everybody goes in and swoops in and, and, and hurts with them. See, that's not our natural reaction as people. Our natural reaction is where we see pain and heartache and hurt is to turn and go the other way. Except for a handful of you that are gifted with compassion, most of us, <laughs> we're not really excited about other people's pain. Just as soon, let that go and head in a different direction. But in the body of Christ, there is a fellowship of suffering. That when one member suffers, we all suffer together. I want to think about this just for a moment because there's an increasingly noticeable pursuit that I've seen in the church today for healing and for the miraculous to be done among us. And that's a good thing. I'm very positive on the idea that we pray for healing. That we watch for and look for and expect God to do the miraculous. But in some circles of the church, there seems to be such a desire to return to the days, the miraculous days of the first century church, that something I believe is getting lost in that consideration of healing. As far as healing is concerned, my thinking is this, and this is just my opinion. Some of you may disagree, and that's fine. Um, the great thing about the bridge is you can be wrong and be loved. So, now this is just my opinion, but if it brings glory to the Father, if healing brings glory to the Father, I'm all for it. If healing or even resurrection from the dead, as we hear goes on in mission work in third world countries even today, if these things bring glory to God, fantastic. If they further the kingdom, wonderful. If they save a soul, even better. But if they're just about the experience, then I think we're missing something. For while I pray for miracles and believe divine healing, and even again, raising from the dead does happen today, the two miracles that I am most praying for, these are the two big ones that I want to see happen. I want to see the salvation of souls and the rapture of the church. Those are the two miracles I'm praying for. Because honestly, heal me today and I'm going to get sick tomorrow. Raise me from the dead today, I'm going to die again tomorrow. But rapture me home to be with Jesus forever and I will always be with the Lord. Watch a soul saved and know that person now is my brother or sister in Christ for all eternity. That to me is the most miraculous thing that we can pray for and look for and long for. There is something, by the way, in all of this to be said for suffering. In the pursuit of immediate healings, we may miss, listen to me, a deeper fellowship with Jesus. And I encourage you not to put him on the spot, but I encourage you to ask him about his walk with the Lord over the last two years. As he's been dealing with the kidney problems that he has. Ask him, what's your walk with Jesus been like through nights where you can't sleep? Through days where you have to stand because even sitting down is painful. Ask him what his relationship with Jesus is like now versus two years ago. Is it good that my brother's in pain? No. Is it good that he suffers? No, I'm not saying that at all. But is there a deeper fellowship of suffering that's happening here that he would have missed had he not been in this place? Yes, I believe there is something that would be missed. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says, and listen, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. I want this, Paul says. I want a fellowship in the suffering of Jesus. And I guarantee you that when Paul was whipped, there was a joy in his heart, a deep joy. 
where he was sharing in the fellowship of Jesus, when he was being stoned within an inch of his life, there was wonderful peace in knowing he was sharing in the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Peter understood this. He said in 1 Peter chapter 4, in fact, if you read 1 Peter chapter 4 and 5, go through both those chapters and, and just mark how many times Peter talks about and uses the word suffering. And he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. I mean, he's not saying go around with a sad, sorry look on your face. He doesn't say the fellowship of grumpiness. It's a fellowship of suffering. It's being able to walk down the road even in pain for the sake of Jesus and know the joy of the Lord and the presence of the Father. Peter says if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We're not talking about sadomasochistic Christianity here. We're not talking about a group of people sitting around and again grumbling and wishing they could just have more pain so they could be more Christ-like. That's not the idea. What we're talking about is that in these last days, there will be suffering. But a suffering that is shared, the fellowship of suffering that is shared in the body, a body that is praying together, that is loving each other, that is bearing each other's burdens, that fellowship is a very good thing. And in that fellowship, I personally believe our time would be best spent praying for and looking after eternal outcomes rather than temporary ones. After all, if someone dies in Christ, is it really in their best interest that they be raised back to life? Not this life. And I'll tell you what, if I die in Christ, don't you dare try and raise me from the dead. I don't want to come back. You're on your own. I'm out of here. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on the fl- in the flesh is it's more necessary for your sake. What Paul said, I, I've got a job to do here, I recognize that, but if it's my call, I'm out of here. It's much better to be with Christ. In any case, we see with these three women the fellowship of suffering. It draws them together. It deepens their relationship. And I encourage you, as a family in Christ, not to run from one another's struggles, but that we press into each other and love each other more and not be afraid of the struggles that we may have but share them together. Ruth and Naomi especially share this. For here at the crossroads of suffering, there are two distinct differences that stand out between these two women, Ruth and Orpah. The two daughter-in-laws of Naomi, very very different situation. You're looking at it in verse 10. It says the two girls, Naomi and or sorry, Ruth and Orpah, say to Naomi, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. And here's the first distinction between Ruth and Orpah. There is a difference between your people and my people. At this point in time, we see Orpah and Ruth first call the Jews your people. They're looking at Naomi and they say, you know, we want to come with you to where your people are. And that truly is the heart of Orpah. I'll come with you to where your people are. They're not mine. They're your people. Later on, we will see Ruth's heart come out more clearly over in verse 16 where she says, Your people shall be my people. Now this is a great shift because at this point, Ruth is saying, It's not just about me being where you are with those people that you connect to. I want to be one of them. I want to call them mine. I want to be in in this line of the Jewish people. I want to be a part of Israel. My people, not just your people. And Orpah ends up going back to Moab and not going on to Israel, primarily because Israel is not her people. Ruth, on the other hand, goes with Naomi because she has seen something in Naomi and in the family. She has seen something of Israel. And she wants them to be her people, my people. She wants to claim that connection. And by the way, this paints a beautiful picture for us today of the relationship Christians, I believe, are called to have with the Jewish people. We are Ruth in the picture. Ruth to their Naomi. That we would say, your people are now my people. Your God 
is now my God. And we do serve and love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Israel is my God. He's not Israel's God, who, you know, I worship kind of through Israel. No, He's my God now. And Israel, gang, they are my people because I've been grafted in. We're going to save that for a later study. But there is a difference between saying your people and saying my people. Verse 11 going on, Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? <laughs> Have I yet sons in my womb that, I, that they may be your husbands? She's speaking now of the Leverite law of, again, the brother, uh, another brother coming up and taking the, the uh, dead brother's wife. She says in verse 12, Return, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She's talking again about that next kid's responsibility to take a wife of a dead brother to continue the offspring, Deuteronomy 25. So watch what Orpah and Ruth do next. There's, there's a difference between these two. One is calling Naomi's people your people. The other one will call them my people. But verse 14 tells us they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And Ruth clung to her. Big difference here, gang. Don't miss this. The difference between kissing and clinging. Orpah kisses Naomi. Ruth clings to Naomi. Now, this is an interesting word, this word kiss. Because in the New Testament, the Greek word for to kiss is proskuneo. And proskuneo literally means, or is translated, worship. To kiss or worship. So to kiss is, is an action, an attitude, a heart of worship, according to New Testament Greek. Old Testament Hebrew, it's interesting, Psalm 2 verse 10, or verses 11 and 12, say, Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son. The Hebrew word there for homage is literally kiss. Kiss the Son. There's a connection both in the Hebrew and the Greek between worship and kissing. What are you getting at, Rick? I'm not sure. No. Anyone can kiss. Anyone can kiss. That doesn't take much commitment. Anyone can come in off the street, be moved by music in worship, and begin to worship the Lord. But there's a vast difference between coming in and worshiping on a Sunday or a Wednesday night and clinging to the Lord. You can kiss the Lord, or you can cling to the Lord. Or but kisses Naomi, Ruth clings to her. Orba, in essence, kisses her goodbye. Ruth will not let go. Anyone can kiss. It doesn't take much commitment. It's like adventures through inner space. I don't know how many of you remember the old Disneyland ride, Adventure Through Inner Space. Remember that, Michelle? Cheryl and I remember this vividly from our childhood. You go up there, and, and it was that ride at Disneyland where you got in those little booths, those little cars, and you'd start up the track, and then you'd go into this big microscope, big telescope, and you'd actually get shrunk. I don't know how they did it, but you got shrunken down to microscopic size. It was amazing. And as you went through this ride, shrunken down, you got smaller and smaller and smaller going through the ride until you came out the end back to normal size. I don't know how they did it. But here's the thing about adventures in inner space. Those of us who grew up in Southern California knew it as the kissing ride. Because it was dark in there. And you would go to Disneyland, junior high, high school age, and I, I'm not saying that I did this, but you go to Disneyland and you try and find some other, you know, person about your age of the opposite sex and go, hey, want to ride inner space? And go for a little ride on, you know, because it was dark. Anybody can kiss. The ride's over and you go, see you later, I'm headed for the Matterhorn. And you get out of there. Anyone can kiss. There's no commitment there. There's no commitment in, in Orpah. She leaves. She heads back to her family. Ruth clung to Naomi. She refuses to let go. Orpah's name, by the way, and it is where Oprah got her name. I had two or three people tell me that on Sunday, that Oprah was supposed to be named Orpah, but her parents got it misspelled, and so she got stuck with Oprah. I don't know if that's important to you biblically, but I thought I'd share that. But Orpah, her name literally means gazelle. Gazelle. She, like Ruth, professes love for Naomi, but when times get really hard, she skips out, leaping like a gazelle, back to her people, back to her land of Moab, back to her gods, where she is more comfortable. 
We never hear from Orpah again until she reappears later with her own daytime talk show. What is your intention with the Lord? Ask yourself, do you cling to the Lord or do you just kiss Him from time to time? Popping in for worship and that little experience and then you're out of there, you're off to the Matterhorn or, or to Space Mountain. Or do you cling to the Lord? Ruth clung to Naomi. Anyone can worship, but my friends, it is the walk that the Lord is interested in. And by the way, if you're walking with the Lord, the worship doesn't end when the song stops. The worship is every day. Well, verse 15, Ruth clung to her, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. And when she, Naomi, saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. J. Vernon McGee calls this the sevenfold division, uh, decision of Ruth. The sevenfold decision of Ruth. She goes through, you can count seven specific things she commits to here, verses 16 and 17. Where you go, I will go, number one. Where you lodge, I will lodge, number two. Your people shall be my people, number three. Your God, my God, number four. Where you die, that's where I'm going to die, number five. Where you're buried, I will be buried, number six. And finally, number seven, may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts me from you. She is absolutely committed to the very last breath of her life. And even beyond that, she is committed even to burial to be where Naomi is. And that's the kind of commitment the Lord is inviting us to. A commitment that clings to Him to the very last breath of our lives and on into eternity to cling to Him, to hold to Him, to never let go. What is your intention with the Lord? Ruth's commitment to Naomi here is a beautiful commitment, which is why she was able to make a full journey back to the land and why ultimately her people became Ruth's people. Ruth could say, my people. Now, from reading through this, you might wonder, why doesn't Naomi want Orpah and Ruth to stay with her? I mean, I'm, I'm reading through, I'm thinking, this woman's working awfully hard to get rid of these daughters. Are they just irritating? Has she just had it with her daughters-in-law? She really wants to, you know, unhook and get on with her life and let them. What, what is it about Naomi? Listen, this is important. Naomi is making it plain that the choice was 100% theirs. She was putting it completely in their court. And there is a time when, if someone wants to go, you got to let them go. We cannot make choices for other people to be saved. I am more and more passionate as the days go by about evangelism and about us being the people who are out telling others about Jesus and bringing people into the church. In fact, I'll tell you something that, that it, it just kind of shocked me and surprised me on Sunday morning. I asked for a show of hands in second hour about how many people have been a Christian 10 years or more. And then 20 years or more, 30 years or more. And what I was getting at was I wanted to see who the senior saints were. Those who had walked with Christ the longest. But what struck me was I had an emotional reaction when I said, how many people here have been Christians more than 10 years? And the vast majority of hands went straight up. Inside I kind of went, I mean it's wonderful. It's wonderful we have that fellowship. It's wonderful we're all together, but... How many people have only been a Christian six months because they came to the Lord through someone here at the bridge? How many people have only been Christians in the last three years because of what God is doing here in and among us? How many people have each one of us individually spoken the name of Jesus to and and even seen them come to the point of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I don't say that to make you feel guilty. But I do say that to say, are, are we... Are we truly concerned with the lost? Do we have hearts that are passionate to tell people about Jesus and say, you got to come. you got to be. you got to just get here. You've you, you got to hear the Bible. you got to join us in worship. I, I can't have enough Jesus, and I've got to tell you about Jesus. And I'm reminded once again that that's our call. To invite people in 
to the family of God. But for all of that, and for the passionate desire the Lord places in our hearts for evangelism, we need to understand that if someone wants to go, we need to let them go. Even to their gods. Notice Naomi says that. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after her. Naomi is saying, Ruth, go back to your gods. She lays it out clearly. You have got, if you're going to do this, it's got to be an all-or-nothing decision. If you're coming with me, and that's when Ruth makes the all-or-nothing decision, everything is about being where you're going to be. My people, my God, my life will be there. And she's committed, and she doesn't break from that, because she has made that choice herself. But for all of the encouragement to evangelism, evangelism we need to understand that saving people, saving people is not our responsibility. Telling them about Jesus, inviting them to be in the presence of other believers, yes, saving them, it's not our responsibility. Invite them to become part of the story. Tell them about the story of Jesus, but if they won't come along, you let them go. They have to make that decision themselves. You never stop praying, you never give up, but you don't shoulder the burden or expend the energy to drag somebody into heaven. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, the Lord doesn't drag anybody into heaven. But the Spirit is at work convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It is the Spirit's job to save. It is your job and my job to talk about Jesus without ceasing. Matthew 10.14, I remember Jesus said to the apostles, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Why, Jesus? Don't let it stick. Don't let it get you down that you're preaching Jesus over and over. Nobody's listening. You keep preaching Jesus. And you keep going from person to person and town to town and place to place and you keep saying Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you keep on keeping on evangelically and then you let people make the decision they're going to make. Don't let rejection stick. Our responsibility is simply to live in this story. Making disciples, being students of the story. So Ruth saw in Naomi something that she wanted desperately. She'd had 10 years with this woman and she saw the nature of Israel in Naomi and she wanted it. She didn't want to leave it. Ruth understood something and I think we do well to understand this. The worst of Israel was better than the best in Moab. Even to go back to Israel if there was a famine there, Ruth is thinking that's better than going back to Moab. In the same way, the worst with God is better than the best of the world. The most frustrating seasons, confusing times, the most despairing times, when I don't think I can hear the Lord, I would still rather be there than living on top of a mountain as a king in a castle in the world. It's still the best of the world is, is not even close to the worst that God has to offer. And so Paul could say, I want to fellowship in his sufferings. I want to conform to his death. Verse 19, going on. So they both went, Ruth along with Naomi, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Ten years have gone by. And I think Naomi has aged dramatically for her sorrow and her suffering. I think she looks pretty run down at this point. Because the women of Bethlehem are saying, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Don't call me Naomi, meaning pleasant. No, you call me Mara, meaning bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Now this is interesting to me. She says, I went out full, and God brought me back empty. Didn't they leave Bethlehem because there was a famine? But Naomi is now saying that she went out full. What's the point of that? Naomi now recognizes ten years later that even in the famine there was more fullness in her life than chasing after things in Moab which left her completely empty. Empty of husband, empty of two sons. She realizes now ten years later of course it's hindsight but she can look back and see I was full then 
I was fed. Yeah, there was famine. But I was still better fed. I had my husband. I had my sons. I had everything. My people were around me. I was full when I went out. So it was a time of famine. I'm empty now. Which makes me think when we concentrate on what we don't have, we become blinded to what we do have. At the time she left Israel to go to Moab, she was concentrating, Elimelech, her husband, they were concentrating on the famine. Huh, we don't have enough. As opposed to stopping and thinking, but we live in Bethlehem. We live in the promised land. God is our king. Listen, if you want to be full, be thankful. If you want to be full, be thankful. Stop and consider not your misfortune, but your manifold blessings. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4, 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. If you want to be full, be thankful. If you're having a hard time, stop and consider what God has done, how He has blessed you. Talking with Larry Stickles just yesterday, and we were talking about this idea of thanksgiving and thankfulness, and Larry said there was a time in the Tuesday night men's group when Gail Brink, back before Gail passed away, Gail came to the Brink, and it was on a day, Gail, for those of you who don't know, had cancer and, and passed away from cancer. But he came to the group on that Tuesday night, and, and Larry said he looked worse than he had seen him. I mean, he really had gone downhill. He was very pale, very sickly. He was having a hard time. He barely even got there that night. Larry said he came in and he sat down, and all the guys were even wondering, should we call 911? Should we get him to the hospital? He just doesn't look good. But they started talking about it. Someone asked the question, Gail, what has God done in your life? And Gail started to recount all the blessings of the Lord. And Larry said, Rick, I can't even explain it to you, but his entire countenance, since you were probably there, he said his countenance changed. Blood came back into his face. His color returned. His joy, there was a sparkle in his eye. He said by the time he left there, he looked like a different person. Why? Because he stopped and considered what he was thankful for, what the Lord had been doing, what the Lord had done in his life. So if you're having a hard day, pause for a moment and go, okay, let me, let me just think about what I have to be thankful for. I guarantee it will fill you up. And our flesh is so easy to do the opposite. Instead of thanksgiving to God, we end up condemning God, which is what Naomi's doing here. She's blaming the Lord. The Almighty, verse 20, has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me, verse 21. It's God's fault. He's done all this stuff. And I have to ask the question, which we already answered on Sunday, was God afflicting Naomi? Hey, Naomi and Elimelech made the choice to go to Moab, not God. He didn't send them there. And we've got to remember that God is sovereign, but God is also good. He is not the afflictor. He is the provider. I want to say this again tonight. I said it during first hour on Sunday morning, but I forgot about it completely during second hour. And that's the problem with Calvinism's unconditional election. Perhaps you've heard of the five points of Calvinism. And Calvinism is very strong in this part of the Northwest. And Calvinism, for all of, of, of what it teaches, teaches some very good things. But there is one point in the five points of Calvinism, which is unconditional election, and what it speaks about is the sovereignty of God. That God has already chosen who will be saved and who will be condemned. That God has already chosen what good things will happen and what bad things will happen. Everything is completely designed and, and, and planned out by Him ahead of time. Every single thing. Which means the bad things that happen to you are God-ordained. Which means that the struggles that you go through are God-ordained. Which means that the sin that comes against you by others, God-ordained. He already laid it all out. We are basically automatons in this world according to unconditional election. God is counted as solely responsible even for the very evil that He hates. But as we said on Sunday, we read about a God in the Bible who mourns, who weeps, who gets angry, who is frustrated. Why is that? If he's sovereign, and if he truly has already controlled all things, why would he get upset by it? He knows it's going to happen. Why did he get mad at Israel? He knew they were going to mess up. And in fact, if he is so sovereign to the point of unconditional election, he designed them to set up. He made them so that they would mess up. And if he did that, why would he be angry when it happens? No, we see we get a different picture of God. Yes, he is sovereign. 
but he is also good. So good, in fact, that he allows us the free will to do what we will, to make our choices. And then he comes along and he makes good out of them for those who are called according to his purpose. Thank God that he is so gracious and merciful and understanding even when we complain against him as Naomi is doing here. Verse 22, it tells us Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest which is a great time to come back empty. If you're going to be empty at all, come back at harvest time and that's when they're coming back. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And now we're introduced to Boaz. Boaz's name, by the way, his name means strength. Strength. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord as we sang tonight. Strength. A couple of things to see about Boaz in this chapter. The first one is this, the kindness of Boaz. The kindness of Boaz. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now this idea here, just so you understand what's happening, the context of gleaning, this was according to God's law. This was God's welfare system. Listen to it. It's Deuteronomy 24.19. He says, When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the alien... The orphan, the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So God says if you're a farmer and you've got your field out there, you go through and you reap the harvest. But but sheaves that fall off or extra wheat that's left there or, or barley that falls to the ground, you leave that. And then those who are poor can come in behind your reapers and they can be gleaners. They can glean what's left over so that they have some food. This is God's plan. It maintains the dignity of the poor by allowing them to work, but it provides for them when they may have no other means. It's a great system. Now verse 3 going on says, So Ruth then departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, I love this, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. What a guy. Here's this landowner, and he comes out to see where the reapers are and how they're doing and, and check in with them. Ask what's going on. He has a heart of kindness here. He goes to them, and, and by the way, I, I love this. It says that uh, in verse 3, it says that Ruth happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Well, what a coincidence! She just happened to find his field. She just happened to be there as Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, as we'll see in a moment, of Naomi's family, comes riding up. And Boaz and his kindness is following God's prescribed Deuteronomic law. But the first words out of his mouth are kindness and concern for the poor gleaners and the reapers. And Ruth is one of those. This lost and impoverished Gentile ends up in the fields of Boaz. You know what's going to be great about getting to heaven is we'll be able to sit around and hear how similar all our stories are. How many of us just happened to be in the field of the kinsman redeemer on a certain day? How many of us just happened to show up on a certain day, on a certain morning, on a Sunday perhaps, where a lesson was designed just specifically for you? And you're not sure how the pastor did it, but it was right what you needed to hear when you needed to hear it. You just happened to run into a person at work who keeps talking about Jesus. And wow, just happened to fall in love with what you were hearing. You just happen to meet some, some man or some woman and, and begin to develop a relationship and as you fall in love with them you start hearing about this. You just happen. There's no coincidence with the Lord. He is always out there. God's, God's field, His harvest, is never coincidental. The Holy Spirit is always at work. John, Jesus tells us in John 14, 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In fifteen twenty six, He says, When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He'll testify about me. So the Holy Spirit is in the world today testifying about Jesus, getting people in places where they just happen to hear the name of the wonderful Jesus. 
And Jesus says in John 16.8, He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so Ruth just happens to be in the field at the right time, at the right place, when the right man comes along. And by the way, speaking of the Holy Spirit, look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to his servants, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replies, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi in the land or from the land of Moab. The servant here, my Bible margin, I actually wrote this down. I wrote the Holy Spirit. Because in the pictures of this story, the servant portrays for us the Holy Spirit. So we have a picture and type of the Holy Spirit here who points out the Gentile to the kinsman redeemer and that's what the Holy Spirit does in the world today. He points out the Gentile, the lost person, the foreigner to the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. I like that picture. Verse 7 going on. She said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Now Ruth is talking to Boaz. Thus she came and has... Re- or no, the, the servant's telling him. Thus she came and, and has remained from the morning until now... She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink something from what the servants draw. Verse 10, it says, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Gang, that statement of Ruth, to me, is the heart of a Christian today. Why have you found me favorable? Why why are you being so kind to me, Lord? Why would you include me here? Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember, you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I stand there alongside Ruth saying, Why? Why do you treat me with such kindness? Why do you bring me? I'm a foreigner. I'm an outsider. Why would you do this? Peter says in 1 Peter 2.10, For once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I say, kinsman, redeemer, why? Why would you pour out your favor on me? A Gentile and an outsider. And Paul, using the metaphor of an olive, olive tree to indicate Israel, in Romans 11:17 says if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker which, with them of the rich root of the olive tree do not be arrogant to the branches but if you are arrogant remember it's not you who supports the root but the root supports you Paul is saying it is out of Israel that Messiah came it is out of Israel that you have been drawn in that you have been grafted in. The root supports you. And I'll tell you, when we walk around the hills of Judea and the streets of Jerusalem and the shores of the Galilee, when we go there and spend time in Israel, that is my sense the whole time I'm there and awe that I get to be involved in this. Why do I get to see this? Why do I get to be considered part of this? There's something else I've written right there in the margin of verse 10, heart of a Christian. Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Listen to what Boaz says. He replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully recorded to me. He knows about her. He has heard about her. And you, how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Boaz says, May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Again, what a guy. The kindness of Boaz. He continually, by the way, you notice he speaks the name of the Lord over and over and over. This man has a relationship with God. This man knows the Lord. And when he looks at Ruth, he says, The kindness that I show you, it's because of the kindness that you showed my people. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Matthew 25. In fact, turn over there. 
Matthew 25 and verse 34. It says, The king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in naked, you clothed me sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, like Ruth, listen to this, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? In other words, why are you ushering us into the kingdom? What have we done to deserve such favor? And the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, will say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Amen. See, we see in Boaz that picture again of the kinsman redeemer who says, I heard about you, Ruth. I heard about what you did for Naomi, my kinsman. I heard about how you treated Jesus would say, my people Israel. Because you did it for the least of these brothers of mine. Now I, I know Matthew 25 has, has been used in a broad sense to say, take care of the poor, and feed the sick, and visit those in prison, and take care of the homeless. I, I know it's been used in that broad servant-minded sense, but the context game of Matthew 25 is the judgment of nations following the tribulations. And what Jesus is saying here is he judges the nations. This is not a judgment of Christians who have already been caught up and saved. This is Jesus judging the nations and the standard of judgment he uses, at least in this parable, is how the nations treat Israel during the tribulation. How you cared for my people. And if you cared for my people, Israel, if you, like Ruth, would say, your people are now my people, your God, my God, if you're one of those, like Ruth, then you will be ushered into the kingdom, the Lord declares. And we see this, the kinsman redeemer. How you treat my people matters to me. We're going to do a whole lesson on this also at the end of the month when I get back from vacation. I need some time to think about this some more. But this whole concept of how we treat Israel. I've been asked recently this question. What has the church to do with Israel? Why, Rick, do you talk about Israel all the time? Part of the reason is because we're in the Old Testament. It's going to be hard not to talk about Israel and go through the Old Testament. But there is a responsibility that we as Christians have to Israel. And it's a responsibility I have only recently come to understand. We'll talk about that coming up later on. But again, these pictures are amazing as we walk through this book. Going back to the book of Ruth now, verse uh, 13. Ruth said, and I love the, the conversation. We can go back, because we're breaking it down verse by verse. Go back and, and read through the conversation, because you just see these two kind of falling for each other. It's pretty romantic. Husbands, go home and read it to your wife. Verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants, she says. Verse 14, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread. Jesus is going to say, Come up here to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Boaz says, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers. She's a gleaner, a poor gleaner, picking up the extras. But Boaz calls her up to be among those who are now the reapers, those who are out in the harvest working for him. And he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and she had some left when she rose to glean Boaz commanded his servant saying let her glean even among the sheaves do not insult her also guys purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it behind that she can glean and do not rebuke her give her a little extra verse 17 so she gleaned in the field until evening she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley which by the way was a ton not a literal ton but it was a lot big old bag of barley here she took it up verse 18 went into the city to her mother-in-law and she saw what she had gleaned so she also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied and so we see the kindness of Boab he's going out of his way he's going, going beyond the call of duty or the call of Deuteronomy he's going beyond that now and he is blessing Ruth with the extra sheaves and with the barley but now Naomi's heart skips a beat 
For she recognizes the second thing to see in Boaz, and that's the kinship. The kinship of Boaz. We've seen the kindness. This is the kinship. Verse 19. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. Literally, Gaal, kinsman redeemer. If your Bible says, closest relative, right in the margins, kinsman redeemer. Because that's the Hebrew word that's there. Gaal, he is the one. He is the one who can bring redemption into our household. He's not just any relative. He's our closest relative. Our kinsman redeemer. Don't miss this. The the excitement and the enthusiasm going on in this conversation now between Ruth and Naomi. As Naomi's figuring out who this guy is and Ruth is sharing about who this guy is and they're going back and forth. The mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law kind of like Cheryl and her mom after Cheryl first met me. They must have just been talking about this great guy. You know? Back and forth. I just imagine them that night at home. Oh, you're not going to... Back and forth. This is the guy. He's the right one. And as a matter of fact, I know this to be true. Cheryl's parents wanted me to marry Cheryl before she did. It was interesting how that worked out. I was always good with the parents. It's with the girl that didn't always work out. Verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. By the way, that's not what he said. He didn't say stay close to my servants. In other words, the men who are out there working. He said stay close to my maids. Why would he say that? Because Boaz has an eye on Ruth already. I guarantee it. He's saying, um, listen, you you stay with my maids (laughs) over here. Stay with the ladies. Don't go near my servants. He tells the servants, don't you touch her. You stay away from her. Ruth, she says, he said you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth with the wisdom of a lady who has some experience, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids. Don't go out with his servants. I, I, uh, this is subtle. Could be wrong here, but I think possibly Ruth is thinking, I can go out and hang out with the servants, and maybe one of these servant men could be a husband for me. And Naomi's saying, stay with the maids. You stay with the maids, because Naomi is seeing something Ruth is not. She is seeing the kinsman redeemer. She's seeing that Boaz has an eye on Ruth, and I don't think Ruth can even imagine at this point that this wealthy landowner in Israel could, could give a rip for her. He was kind to her, he was nice to her, but I don't think Ruth is seeing it. It's like, what? That, that, no, not him. Just one of the servants would be enough. And one of the servant boys, that, that would be a good relationship. Not, I can't even imagine that. And Naomi says, with wisdom, stay with the maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So, verse 23, she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Sometimes it takes some convincing to believe your kinsman redeemer really does want you. I was reminded of this again just, just last week where I was talking with someone who was sharing a conversation they had had with a senior saint with someone who had been a Christian a long, long, long time and this person who had been a Christian for a long, long, long time was raising the question of their salvation and it just struck me how how many of you don't raise your hand but ask this question to yourself how many of you question your salvation in Jesus Christ? How many of you say, boy, I mean, I know the Bible says this, but I can't imagine that my kinsman redeemer, I can't imagine that that my Boaz, that Jesus, I can't imagine him. Really? Really? He wants to save me? And we we find people, Christians, going back and forth. There are those times where they say, oh, I know I'm saved. It's a good day today. Between that place and the place of... Boy, I'm just not sure. Look at what I've done this week. Look at the life I've lived. Boy, I'm not sure if I am saved. 
Gang, John wrote that these words were written so that you may know that you have eternal life and that by knowing you may have life in His name. That you can know, not question, not wonder, as with Islam, where the, the, one of the higher up clerics right after Muhammad said, I can have one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth and be a perfect man and all at the last second could choose to send me straight to hell. That's not the, the God of the Bible. That's not Jesus. Jesus said, I have done everything that needs to be done so that you can know that you are saved and not walk around questioning it so that you can live your life with that absolute assurance, my salvation, done deal. And now my life is about living for Jesus. And not about worrying, have I done the right thing today? Have I done the wrong thing? I'm not worried about the right and the wrong of it. I am wanting to walk for Jesus and tell people about Him. When you live in the love of Christ, you keep His commandments. Isn't that what He said? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not, if you love me, you better keep my commandments. He said, no. It's a natural outflow. If you love me, it's going to happen. You cannot help but keep the commandments of Jesus Christ if you love Him. And I love Him. Why? Because He saved me. It's done. I'm secure in that salvation. If you're a little unsure of this, let me just read you a couple of verses here. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? you believe in Jesus? You shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world first time. I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. And Paul said these wonderful words, Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His love toward us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we, in the midst of it, that's when He died. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Is that not clear enough? So if you have questioned it this week, no more questions. You are a blood-bought, saved child of God. Exult in that. Rejoice in that. Thank Him for that. And live with that confidence. Because, my friends, it is out of that confidence that we become true evangelists. It's not from the place of questioning my salvation that I'm able to go tell people about Jesus. It's when I know I'm saved that I can't stop talking about Jesus. It's when I have that... Do you want to be saved like me? I can tell you how. Do you want the joy that is always mine no matter how dark the days get? I can tell you how. Jesus Christ saved me. He wants to do the same for you. Let that be on your lips. By the way, we're going to stop here for tonight. But I want you to look back at verse 19 one last time before we go. This is interesting to me. I just discovered this this week. Naomi says to Ruth, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. I like that. May he who took notice of your gleaning, of your work, of your walking with the Lord, may the person who took notice of that be blessed. May the person who saw Jesus in your eyes, who, who, who heard Jesus on your lips, may they be blessed. Now, I share this verse because a few generations back, two, three generations ago, this is how Christians used to greet each other. Did you know that? There was a time in the church, 80, 90 years ago, when Christians would come up to each other and they would say, where did you glean today? Where did you glean today? Where did you work? What field were you in today? What a wonderful thought. In fact, I encourage you, freak out the rest of the fellowship by asking them that. Where did you glean today? Why was I mean today? No, no. Where did you glean today? And they'll ask you, what in the world are you talking about? And you can say, oh, it's, it's from Ruth. It's about the harvest. I'm just curious who you told about Jesus today. And let's encourage each other with that thought. 
Who did you talk to? Oh man, I, I didn't really talk to anybody about Jesus today. And when you wake up in the morning, you think, I'm going to talk to somebody about Jesus today. Now, if you're not used to being that kind of an evangelist, start easy. Right as the mailman is driving off after dropping off the mail, just say, Jesus, and, you know. So you're practicing a little bit, you know. And then when you're in line at the store, you know, and you've got your groceries, you're about to leave, Jesus loves you. <laughs> Did you say something? Oh, yeah, bye-bye. Get used to it. And allow yourself even to look foolish for the Lord in asking people straight up, Do you know Jesus? Are you, are you a believer in Jesus? I mean, it'll stun people, but they will either, you know, say, as a matter of fact, yeah, I go to such and such place. And you go, oh, great, cool, we're brothers in Christ, awesome. Or they may say, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, I just, I don't know, I'm just wondering if you want to be eternally saved too. <laughs> where did you glean today? What, what have you learned today? What, what has the Lord given you from the fields? Or where did you work for the Lord today? There is a harvest waiting. The Lord, my friends, has visited His people in giving them food. In the world in which we live, in these last days, there is a harvest that is waiting. And I believe the Lord's question to us tonight is, where did you glean today? And if you didn't have time to get out in the fields today, tomorrow's a whole new day, and when you wake up, would you wake up with that word on your mind, glean? Why am I going to glean today? Because I know there's a harvest out there. And Father, we pray for the harvest. We pray as Jesus asked that you would send workers into the harvest that, Father, we would be blessed to be among those workers. We realize, Lord, we're like Ruth. We are the outsiders, the Gentiles. We're from Moab. We're from, from outside, but we've been brought in. And we desire, Father, not just to glean, but to reap from the fields of harvest. We recognize with humbleness, Father, that other people have sown and others have watered. But we want to reap for the sake of the kingdom. I haven't prayed this in a while, Father, but I pray for the evangelistic effort that is going on in this region right now. And I pray for the heartbeat of the Bridge Fellowship to be an evangelistic church. So we would talk about Jesus without ceasing. And that, Father, we would see people saved because your Holy Spirit is already at work. Perhaps, Lord, all your Spirit is waiting for is for one of us to just mention Jesus' name so that he can go to work on the heart of the person we mention it to. Help us to glean tomorrow, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.